Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Last time on House of Prayer. And then they would all kneel down and they would look toward the southeast and they would pray. And, and, but they only, they only said Jesus. It was just Jesus, 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 over and over. I don't know if Moses was, you know, they, the rumor is he was burned in the burn barrel. How can I live with myself? Like, I felt like I was accessory to a murder. I just start feeling like just all conflicted and sick. Their family and their memory deserve, deserve justice and deserve closure. I mean, I can't, you can't sweep a human life under the rug. I don't want to pretend like Moses never existed. Like I'm a snitch on my mom. No, I'm not going to do anything like that. Just... You know what I feel like, though? Is that what I am? I mean, I just feel horrible, man. I think you're doing the right thing, Joy. Uh, you're not making any conclusion. You're passing on information, and it, maybe it's already been investigated. Maybe it's never been investigated, but that's what I do for a living, and I'll get to the bottom of it. Please take care when listening. Some of this is difficult to hear. My name is Kevin Allen. I'm a cold case homicide detective for the Alachua County Sheriff's Office. Today is Saturday, January the 28th, 2017. This is Joy Fluker. Uh, Joy used to live here a long time ago, and we've asked her to walk us through the interior of the residence. This is from a police video. Joy is looking into the camera. Lead cold case detective Kevin Allen is just off to the side. They're on the property that used to be the house of prayer, that used to be her home. Joy looks a bit anxious, like she's not sure where to look, into the camera or at Detective Allen. So Joy, you're our narrator, and we're going to listen to you, and we're going to follow you. Joy walks slowly around the property, pointing out the things she's remembering. The wash house used to be there, the garden here. Coming down here. Um, park, cars would park on this side of the property. A month earlier, Joy had called the Alachua County Sheriff's Office. It was a call that would eventually change her mother's life forever. The nightmares and these horrible memories that she'd been pushing aside just couldn't be ignored anymore. With that call, Kevin Allen was on the case. You're talking about in the room beyond the yeah. doors there? This is where Anna Young led her church for 10 years. Where was the pulpit? The pulpit was right there, like where those bricks are. It's right there in the middle. Let's go through there. I think that door is unlocked. Joy passes through the hallways and points out the places where people slept, ate, and prayed. Hey, Joy, when you said uh, children and adults were beaten here, is there any one specific location where that occurred? I'll show you there. Okay, we'll follow you. This right here is where, but this was this was like a little. There's a door right here. Like a little room area. This is a trap door or a hidden door. The house is full of hidden spaces. Under the floorboards, under staircases, false walls and closets, a ladder that leads to a tiny space. Okay. Demetrius, can you come here for a second? Sure. Your husband or me? Both of y'all. Okay. 
Up to this point in the video, Joy had seemed composed. Now she can't move. She's frozen. This spot has been the center of Joy's nightmares. This is where she last saw Moses, the little boy who just showed up one day and was introduced as her new brother. Joy remembers this closet and seeing him sitting on a little stool. He was so small. Joy, do you believe this is where he was murdered? I can't get out of here. I can't get out of here. Rob, we're going to go off the record for a minute and take a little break. This is House of Prayer, an original podcast by UCP Audio. I'm Leela Day. And I'm Beth Karras. This is the story of a mother who claimed God spoke directly to and through her. It's also a story about a daughter's search for the truth. Chapter 3, Marcos. Our investigation has revealed we have multiple victims. Uh, There are three juveniles that were tortured. Uh, Two were murdered, died at the scene. Uh, One was buried here in Alachua County. The other were still looking for their remains. Detective Kevin Allen sits at a long conference room table with a number of other deputies from the Alachua County Sheriff's Office. They're reviewing Anna Young's case. Struggling with this decision. Detective Allen has been investigating the death of Moses for about 18 months now. He's talked to a number of former members, heard about the extreme discipline, documented what he believes are abuses, and passed on the evidence to prosecutors. He's done more than uncover evidence of the death of one little boy, though. Uh, There's another child uh, that was left in Puerto Rico, on the streets of Puerto Rico, and Deanna dealt primarily with the mother of that victim, Sabrina. Uh, Deanna, can you bring us up to speed on how Sabrina's doing? Um, Well, Sabrina would really like to find her child. So glad you guys could uh, join me today. So, Sabrina, you. you sit here, and Steve, you sit over here. This is Sabrina Hamburg. She spent a decade at the House of Prayer, moving there in 1983 when she was 24, bringing her one-year-old son, Marcos, with her. Thank you for taking your Sunday afternoon. Oh, you're welcome. You're going to sit up closer to the mic when you're talking. All right. Sabrina is soft-spoken. She's still very religious. We meet up at a studio in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Her husband, Steve, sits next to her. This will be a hard conversation. At first, it, was, it wasn't bad. Nothing was, you know, we all did things together. We had lunch. We had 
you know, we made food. Um, we met in the sanctuary, what they call the sanctuary, you know, daily. And initially at the beginning, I didn't feel anything. It was just like a, a family, a group setting. At the House of Prayer, Sabrina took the biblical name of Sister Priscilla. And, like everyone else, she wore the holy clothes, long skirt, head covered. Well, it was um, initially, uh, I think for me, I was seeking um, a relationship with the Father. Uh, loving God, doing what is right, uh, treating people kindly, um, keeping the commandments. All these things were said initially doing right by others, helping the elderly. So it sounded, it sounded right. It sounded like what I was looking for. I just wanted to do what was right. Doing what was right at the House of Prayer wasn't easy, but that was the point. At the beginning, Sabrina was okay with the long days and hard work. The dedication to daily prayer felt right. It was all about following orders, supporting people around you, and a lot of self-discipline. You're up at 5 in the morning, but you stayed up all night, and you didn't get in bed to maybe 3 or 4. And you're expected to be in there at 5 on your own with no alarms. What, were you, what would you do all night until 2 or 3 in the morning? <laughs> she would have us cleaning, washing, ironing, sewing, preparing food. Those were Anna's rules. She decided what people needed to do and what should happen if they broke them. Sabrina says there were times she could predict how Anna would react, but not always. If you did anything, if you burned food, if you spoiled something, you know, she was irate. And you, you were put in the wash house outside uh, for days, there were snakes and rats in that wash house. The work, the long hours, the intense lifestyle, it started to take a toll. How are you supposed to wake up with an hour or two of sleep? Exactly. You, a lot of times you didn't, but then that's more punishment. Oh, um, in terms of punishment, um, I was a little Cinderella. I mean, I got beat. I was beaten with a two-by-four until I um, passed out. I woke up, tried to get up, and didn't realize because they left me on the flatbed of a semi-truck. While Sabrina didn't file any charges against Anna for this alleged beating at the time, she did eventually tell police and prosecutors about it during their recent investigation of Anna. And I tried to get up and didn't realize that my body was not functioning well. So I stood up only to topple over and hit my head and on the steel, you know, bed of that truck. And within two days, my head blew up twice its size, and they called me the devil, and they didn't take me anywhere to get any kind of medical help. So you had this trauma. I had trauma. 
to your head, to your brain, and yes. it went untreated. And it went untreated, and I was the devil. I was picked at, looked at awful, it, it, just humiliating things, and I was sick. How could this have happened to a group of adults? Was Anna so charismatic and controlling that people just followed her so blindly? Or was there more to it? In the black community, there is, you know, because I grew up with this, um, the elderly women, they're considered mothers of the church. And you, you respect them. You listen to them. They're the ones to teach you, tell you what is right. When I was growing up, the mothers came in. If your dress was too short or if you had a back out, they would throw a little, um, like a little jacket over your shoulders or they'd put like a little towel over your legs and they'd hug you and say, you know, all right, baby, you know, you, you know, we have men here in the congregation. And they were sweet ladies. They didn't mean any harm. They were just trying to lead and guide you in a more correct way. Looking back, Sabrina can't believe she tolerated all of this for an entire decade. It's hard for me to understand, too. But it's the story of her son, Marcos, that I really can't wrap my head around. Perhaps Anna's most extreme rule was that any mother who joined the house of prayer basically had to hand over her children. And the children that I spoke with, all now adults, every one of them, told me that Anna insisted on replacing their own mothers. She um, completely took him away from me. She said that we needed to be separated. I wasn't um, strong enough for him, and um, I wasn't teaching him right, and there were so many little things, and uh, so she had full control of him. How did that make you feel? Uh, terrible. Did you fight back? Initially, I think I tried, but, you know, when you're in that situation and um, who do you run to? Who do you talk to? Because in that environment, she knows everything. And, and you couldn't talk to anyone. We were all afraid of each other to say anything because everybody ran back and told Anna. I allowed Anna to keep Marcos. I was forced not to um, have any interaction with him. It was just out of control. It was out of my control. Listen, if you want to take a break, you know, we can take a break. It's Did okay. okay. Sabrina's husband, Steve, reaches out to grab her hand. A part of me wants to reach out, too. Do you know if Marcos was being punished? Initially, I did not. And I found out later that he was. Um, I re recall Anna, she, she beat him so bad. <laughs> She put him in a box, and his, he could only stand. He was bent over. In a box? In a box. Sabrina has told this to the police on more than one occasion. 
and she will be testifying if she's called as a witness in Anna's murder trial. Anna denies abusing the children in her care. Lori Vallow was the kind of woman who seemed to have it all. But that sweet girl next door was changing. She's lost her mind. So how does she pose a threat to your children? I don't know what she's going to do with them. I'm Sarah Trelevin, and this is Madness of Two. Over the last year, I've been investigating the case of Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell. How together, police say they plotted the deaths of Lori's two children, JJ and Tylee, something they've denied. Join me in Madness of Two, available wherever you get your podcasts. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Of all the stories we've heard, Marcos's story stands out. It takes a different turn, at least according to his mother. She comes out one day and she says that Mar- it's Marcos or it's me. One of us has to leave. Sabrina says Anna presented her with a strange ultimatum. Someone had to go, either little Marcos or Anna. And she tells this to everyone, you know. And, of course, it's Marcos because she's not leaving. And she says that he needs to um, be sent over to Puerto Rico because that's where he's from. His father was Puerto Rican. And he needs to go back to Puerto Rico. Sabrina had never been to Puerto Rico. And Marcos wasn't born there. She had no relationship with Marcos's dad, and as far as she knew, he was still in Florida. And that was it. I had no say-so in it. Why would Anna do this? Without being able to ask her directly, it's really hard to know. As I'm trying to sort through it all, I find out something that might give us a small clue. When Sabrina first came to the House of Prayer, she came with her mother, Gloria Benton, But that didn't last long. In less than a year, Gloria escaped. Initially, she tried to convince her daughter to leave. When that didn't work, Gloria set her sights on saving her grandson. What I found out is that about a month before the trip to Puerto Rico, Gloria hired an attorney to look into the welfare of the little boy. Had Child Protective Services inquired about an abused child? Could this be why Anna wanted little Marcos out of the house? We reached out to Florida's Department of Children and Families, looking for a file on Marcos. But they don't keep records that far back. Whatever the reason, Sabrina says she didn't have a choice. She says Anna bought plane tickets from Miami to San Juan. She dressed 
my son in a girl's outfit with a pink bonnet. And Sabrina, little Marcos, and Elder Adam, who Anna sent as chaperone, all boarded a plane bound for Puerto Rico. And she instructed Adam to not let me touch him. I could not hold him or anything. And we flew over to Puerto Rico. Her instructions were to just leave him on the streets, just find somewhere in the dark, wait till night in the dark, and leave him on the streets. When we got over to Puerto Rico, um, Adam, I told Adam, I said, we can't leave him on the streets, I said. Take him to a church. Because I knew somebody would find him if he was at a church and take care of him. Sabrina says her memories of this day are at times sharp, others less so. It was December 1984. From what she can remember, they took a taxi into town. Sabrina remembers seeing water on both sides as they drove into the city. She also remembers driving under a bridge that had train tracks running over it. This sounds like she's describing what's known as Old San Juan. They checked into a rundown hotel for a few hours. When it got dark, Adam, Sabrina, and Marcos took to the streets, looking for a church where they could leave the two-year-old, who was still dressed as a girl. Sabrina says they walked by a fast-food restaurant that could have been a McDonald's and a big building surrounded by wrought iron gates that she thought might have been a courthouse. They kept walking until Sabrina spotted a church where she heard singing. Together, they walked into the courtyard and placed little Marcos on a bench. And then, they walked away. Did you, did you hold your son one last time? Yes, he, Adam put him in my arms so that I could put him on the bench. And what was your hope? That someone, a believer, would find him and take care of him. When you know, when when you left Marcos on the bench, did he say anything? Was he crying? Do you he remember? was crying. He was crying, and I didn't want to leave him. I wish I could have taken him, but did you consider staying, sort of running away and staying in Puerto Rico? I didn't ever think of that. Do you know what happened to Marcos? I don't. I do not. Sabrina went right back to the house of prayer. She had done what she was asked to do, and she prayed that someone was taking good care of her son. At the house of prayer, Sabrina had a roof over her head and community. She kept her head down and carried on. She stayed for eight more years. I left in May of 92. During those years, Sabrina continued to endure Anna's unpredictable sense of discipline. There was this constant saying there that she would always say. And she would always say that 
There's nothing out there for you guys in the world. There's nothing out there. It's all here. And after you hear that, a lot of us start to say, oh, there's nothing out there for us. And then you'd hear someone else say, oh, there's nothing out there for me. Oh, I'm, I'm just going to live here. But over the years, membership began to dwindle. And as the number of members on the property went down, so did the workload. That meant Sabrina was able to get more sleep. And as her mental fog lifted, Sabrina was able to take stock. Then she heard a rumor. Anna was about to send Sabrina off the property at night to care for a woman at a home for the elderly. And then I would be coming, coming back home there and working all day. And so I said, you know what, I'm not going to do that. More rested and thinking more clearly than she had in years, Sabrina found new strength. It was time for her to leave. So she packed up her bags and walked away. Literally walked away. So I ended up walking down that street all the way down, shaking like a leaf, because I knew I could be dead if she come driving up and she sees that I'm leaving. It could be over. And so, but I walked out, walked on down the hill, walked up to the 7-Eleven store, and I asked the cashier in there, would she, um, if anyone came in that she knew, could I get a ride? You know, I needed a ride to Ocala or Gainesville. And so she said, okay, I'll do that. And there was a couple that took me from Micanopy to Gainesville to a a woman I knew. And that was that. Sabrina was finally out of the house of prayer. Soon after she left, she met and married her brother's best friend, Steve Hamburg. Over the years, they've tried to find Marcos. They employed a private investigator and reached out to churches in San Juan. The police in Puerto Rico open a case, but they find nothing. It seemed Marcos had all but disappeared. We didn't talk about it much. This is Sabrina's husband, Steve. But I was always wondering, I just couldn't let this thing go. I was going to have to find out what happened to Marcos. And I'd ask her questions once in a while. What about Marcos? Today, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children has a page dedicated to Marcos Antonio Cruz. An age progression photo of Marcos lives on their website. When we started to look into this story, it was clear we needed someone on the ground in San Juan. So we hired Laura Gonzalez, an investigative reporter in Puerto Rico. We told her all we could gather from what Sabrina could remember. She was in Old San Juan. The church where she left Marcos was near a fast food restaurant, maybe a McDonald's. Laura combed through newspaper archives, looking for articles about an abandoned child in December 1984 and January 1985. Nothing. She visited churches that fit Sabrina's recollection, and she spoke with people connected to those churches in the 1980s, priests, a nun, and members of the congregations. But no one recalled an abandoned English-speaking boy dressed as a girl. There are no government files either. Records on a case like this are only kept for up to 10 years by the Department of Family Services in Puerto Rico. So we're several years too late. We don't even know if these records ever existed. 
Laura also spoke with law enforcement, some of whom looked into the case years ago. All of them told her they never found anything about a child left outside a church. Authorities never closed the case, but because of a lack of evidence, stopped working on it. Sabrina has also submitted DNA samples to more than one public database. So far, no hits. It's hard to understand why a mother would leave her son alone in a strange city and walk away because she was following orders. And if that is what happened to Marcos, there would be a lot to understand about how one person could have so much control over another. Many people describe the situation at the House of Prayer as a cult. You know, this is, is the first uh, cult that we have recognized or, or found evidence of in this county. The spokesperson for the sheriff of Alachua County calls it a cult, as do the police and prosecutors investigating Anna. And John Neal and his mother, Leah Vera, definitely believe it is. Cults are often made up of a close-knit group of people led by a strong, charismatic leader. They're often bound by unorthodox spiritual beliefs and believe their leader has otherworldly powers— This leader often controls the group's thoughts, behavior, and emotions by fear, sleep deprivation, and isolation from family. But is the House of Prayer a cult? It's so easy to get to see the House of Prayer as a cult, which is basically a kind of pejorative term. And when we we reduce the House of Prayer to a cult, we, we obscure a lot of things that, you know, attract people, and that makes sense in the broader kind of African-American religious milieu, right? My name is Dr. Jamil Drake. I'm a professor at Florida State University in the religion department. Dr. Drake broke it down a little bit more. The roots of the Black church have always been about community and finding a safe space in a world that didn't feel safe at all. You know, it reconnects people who are on the underside of American democracy to something that is divine, to something that is special, to reaffirm, to affirm that they are loved by God and the broader community against the backdrop of a world that is telling them that they're less than. There aren't many places like House of Prayer today. Information is more accessible, resources are more available, but Dr. Drake says without a doubt, he can see why so many people were drawn to it back then. Whether it's Pentecostalism or whether we're talking about Baptists or Methodists, basically they are a kind of a social welfare kind of service, particularly for African Americans who are in economic need, such as past convicts, such as single mothers, such as, you know, other people who are in some ways in a kind of a context of Reaganomics where you get mass inflation, you get deep welfare cuts, poverty is sort of deepened, and you get mass incarceration. The poor, they're being drawn to this sort of uh, house of prayer because it's doing a lot of things that the state won't do because the welfare checks are being cut. And if churches like the House of Prayer grew out of Southern Black culture, the extreme discipline so prevalent in Mother Anna's church was not without ties to the past either. Spankings and whoopings, these are things that a lot of Black folks grew up with. They have the unique ability to whoop you and love you at the same time and be believed. That's what is unique about the African-American community. 
This is Dr. Cody Clark, someone else who has a lot to say about growing up in the South. He's an educator from St. Petersburg, Florida. I did not realize until I was probably in high school, maybe, that not all kids got spanking from their parents. And because I was integrated in the 1960s, and in the integration, I didn't heard that there were friends of my white friends who had never been spanked. But when, but blacks, that was a total, that was not the experience. The belief in the Bible that somehow the child is foolish to begin with and it must be corrected, that comes out of the Bible. And they believe strongly to correct your child. You, you are not a good parent if you don't spank them when they are doing something wrong. Uh, the belief that he is not going to die from you spanking him, that's in the Bible. You know, you need to spank your kid, and that, uh, he'll be crying, but he's not going to die from it, okay? The spanking of the kid causes him to be smarter. That's in the Bible. You know, unless you have a scar on you or you were somehow uh, incapacitated somehow. You know, you got hit in the eye and now you can't see. Or you got a broken limb. I mean, that's what was seen as abuse in the black community when there was. And there were people who did that and they got in trouble. Now, imagine what we were watching on TV, Leave it to Beaver. Some people ain't never got a spanking. <laughs> you know, these kids never... And they did some awful things, and they never got spanked. That's what we were watching. But the community wasn't like that. The community believed differently. And, and when you attach religion to it, that the Bible is saying that one of your problems is being unruly. You're trying to do what you want to do? Then I'm going to correct you, and, if you, and that is a form of love. Now, when you go excessively, you get into what is called abuse. At first, a lot of people around Anna may have justified her ideas of discipline because of who they were and where they came from. They knew firsthand that being Black in the South in the 80s meant that you needed to be taught to be strong. But everyone we talked to said that as time went on, they felt Anna was crossing lines they were not comfortable with. I think discipline is used to, in some ways, protect the child from being harmed in a world that is ready to what? That is ready to kill, punish a kid, particularly black children. And so a lot of parents are emphasizing, you know, or a lot of leaders are emphasizing discipline in light of the racial backdrop as a way to protect their children and to keep them surviving in a heartless world that will not let them be kids. All of this was at the forefront of our investigation. The community. What was happening there at the time? What are some of the reasons why people may not have stood up to Anna? Of course, not all of what is alleged to have gone on at the House of Prayer would have been okay with everyone. Many of the former members have told us that they were uncomfortable with Anna's form of discipline, but they were too scared or too controlled to speak up. Some days I... Wake up crying, and then it can go for a long time, you know, months. And then something hits, and just like before this interview, I knew I was going to be talking about it. So it's, it's on my mind, and um, I wake up in tears. I had a dream, 
a few years back that we found Marcos. And um, that was the, the only one for a very long time. But I dreamed that we found him. I think I was walking down the street and I said, oh, I said, my baby. And I went back and there he was. And, you know, I kind of embraced him and I was so happy. And that was the end of the dream. Next time on House of Prayer. It's interesting that you were like in court. You were before a judge. You had an opportunity to say, to tell them what was going on at House of Prayer. No, I couldn't tell them that. No, not, not as long as Anna had my son. We went out that afternoon with the sheriff and, and helicopter, SWAT team, the whole work. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, we're praying for you. I said, I don't know who you're praying to because I know God and I know Christ and this ain't him. She called me, she said, you need to get out of there. She said, you need to leave. She said, there are a lot of things there that are not right and you need to leave. I said, but I'm not leaving without John. I'm not going to leave without my son. This podcast was produced by Kathleen Goldhar, Beth Karras, Max Miller, and me, Leela Day. Our associate producer is Alexis Green. Sound design and mixing by Mitchell Stewart. Additional reporting by Laura Isabel Gonzalez and Damon Fairless. Executive producing by Kathleen Goldhar, Beth Karras, and myself. Our UCP audio team includes Jessica Grimshaw, Jennifer Sears, Josh Laulongi, Susanna Rooney, and Linda Cohen. This is a UCP Audio podcast. For more information, go to our website, ucpaudio.com. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.